Kia ora, good afternoon, welcome to the panel, RNZ National, Martin Bosley and Jenny Morton with me now. A breakdown is blocking the left northbound lane in the Waterview Tunnel, take extra care when passing, expect delays, we'll keep you updated on that and back to Taupo, that strong wind warning is still currently in place for State Highway 5, Estal to Taupo, do take care, especially if you are in a lighter or higher sided vehicle uh, and indeed take care for much of the country because it's very, very gusty be safe voting season is upon us today the first day you can vote this the goal of this election is to make voting places easy to access so in malls retail areas marae mosques transport hubs and your local mall election day is saturday october 14 there are 20 political parties vying for voters' affections, including the five that are already in Parliament. There are currently 65 general electorates and seven mild electorates, and you can still enrol online now or when you go to vote. And just in news this afternoon, Chris Luxon has pulled out of the press leaders' debate. Chris Hipkins unable to do uh, the debate due to having COVID. But with us is Professor of Politics at Massey University, Richard Shaw. Professor Shaw, kia ora. Tēnā koe, Wallace, and hello to Jenny Martin too. Yes, kia yeah, kia ora, Richard. Can I just actually mark, because this year marks 30 years since Kiwis decided in a referendum to adopt MMP. I just wanted to ask you... <laughs> Pretty general. Do you think it's worked well for us? Is it hard to ever see us going back to first past the post? Yes, because I don't think that there are too very many people who want to return to the days when a single political party could win 35 or 36 or 40 percent of the vote and win a majority of the seats in the New Zealand Parliament and form the government. So, I mean, there are some question marks around MMP, but I think that. As far as um, putting the brakes on executive power and creating parliaments that look much more like the nation than they used to, most people would probably give it two ticks. Um, Now to early voting, and I see it's gaining ground. This is is very interesting. So in 2011, 14% advance voted. In 2020, that figure jumps to 67%. What's the reason? Uh... Well, I think the reason is that it's just it's, it's easier for people to have a two-week window within which to vote. Uh, mm-hmm. If you have something on October the 14th or you're out of the country or whatever the case may be, if you, if you have a voting period of two weeks rather than a single day, that, that just increases the likelihood that people would vote. So one of the things mm-hmm. that we know is that ter- overall turnout has probably been boosted by the advent of advanced voting. I mean, there was a view that 2020 was a bit exceptional because it was a COVID year. But you're right, those stats would suggest that momentum and behind advanced voting, including overseas voting, was picking up well before 2020. So I think it just it just expands the time frame and it removes a few of the obstacles which might otherwise have gotten people's way. Jenny? Uh, well, I personally like voting on election day. You see, I so like, do I. It's I like a bit taking, of, it's a, it's, yes. taking the walk to the polling booth, taking the dog, <laughs> tying the dog to the sign and taking the photo and putting it on oh, Instagram with 100%. dogs of polling booths. But I just, I don't know, there's something nice about voting on on election day, but I do think it's great that we can have this two-week window um, where people who, as you say, might have something on on the 14th, might work on a, you know, they might work in retail, etc., and can't vote on that day and, and might otherwise not vote. So I yeah. do think it's important yeah. and excellent. Um, 
yeah, yeah, no, I'm But it is, it's an interesting it. thing, Jenny, that you say, the thing about the, the day itself, I, I, I feel similarly, and, I, and, there, and there has long been a, a history and a culture around voting day itself. It's been a significant thing because it's oh. the day on which it happens. But now, you know, now every day is voting day for the next two weeks, and mm. so I think that changes the way in which we feel about the election day itself. And also, there is a, there is a really interesting mismatch between the the ways in which we regulate behaviour on the election day as far as media bans and so forth are concerned, which yes. don't apply to the period of time during which these days most New Zealanders vote. So there is a bit of a question there, I think, uh, that for us to address at some point. Oh, okay. Martin. Which comes back to... Oh, sorry, sorry Martin, Martin. Keep, keep, keep going, comes, That comes back to my question about is voting behaviour influenced by poll results leading up to the election? Because it's something I've been wondering about. Do you think that when you hear that New Zealand First might be at 5 or 6%, that it allows people who might otherwise have thought their vote would be wasted to vote for New Zealand First? Is it self-perpetuating, having polls, telling you how people uh, are going to vote? I'm not sure that it's self-perpetuating, but it certainly provides information to people who, who might then vote tactically or strategically in a way that they would not have had they not had that information. So there is a there is a, a long-standing debate about the extent to which um, political polls drive people's behaviour. I, I would probably come down on the side of the position that says it's helpful for people to have as much information as they possibly can before they vote. Um, but there is certainly something that has switched, I think, in the last week or so, and, and probably more so at the point at which Christopher Luxon countenanced the possibility of forming a government with New Zealand first. That was the thing that really, I think, provided mm. that just that little sense of legitimacy that might otherwise have been lacking. And so there will be people who will now perhaps vote for New Zealand first who would otherwise not have done so. I mean, we know that in the past, Bill English, John Key, uh, both of those men ruled out coalitions with New Zealand first, and that, that certainly had effects on the New Zealand first vote. So whether or not Luxon's position is... Um, unequivocally supported within the National Party, that's not for me to say, but I think that, that it was his announcement which might have provided the poll booster rather than the other way around. I see. Yeah, I can't Martin. believe he did that. Let's, uh, let's bring Martin in. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Ross. Um, thanks, Professor. I, uh, well, actually, um, one of my questions was going to be around the um, the media ban on the day. Like like um, you, Wallace and Jenny, I, I love the whole um, performance of voting on the day. Unfortunately, I'm going to be away out of my electorate uh, this, this year, um, so I'm going to have to engage in voting ahead of time. It's a little bit disappointing. Do, but do you think yeah. it's like your know, 30 years of MMP, it feels like we've finally got there that people understand how it works? Like, it feels like it's almost taken a generation almost to get to that point where we're no longer yeah. having to explain thoroughly like just how, yeah. you know, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. Yes, yes, absolutely know what you mean. Um, and, and one of the reasons we know that people, well, one of the reasons we think we know that people have got their heads around it is because we have quite high levels of uh, strategic voting. Around about 30% of us will split our vote, so we'll give right. candidate vote to this person and the party vote to another person's party. Um, and the work that's been done in New Zealand in, after elections to establish why people split their votes rather than voting with a straight ticket invariably comes up with uh, the conclusion that New Zealanders know what, they, what they're doing. So they're well informed, they understand the system now, it's, it's been 30 years. We know what we do. But um, Martin, I, I think that your point is an important one. We have a, a set of regulations and, and, and statutory law which prevents, which has a, which has a blackout on 
uh, on advertising on election day, but we have quite different regulations that apply for the 13 days of voting that precede that. Mm. It just seems like it's an historical anomaly that we really should have addressed some time ago. The electoral agencies raised this issue way back in 2017. Um, nothing much has been done, but I would imagine that if the proportion of us who vote in advance, which was 67% in 2020, if that's higher this time round, then there will be increasing pressure on the next government, whoever that is, to to address what looks like um, something that's just a little bit dated and needs to be needs to be mm. sorted out. No. Hey, just finally, while we're on it, because it is uh, we're talking advanced voting here, uh, and that it's a gaining ground. And did you vote today? I'd be interested to hear from you. Two one uh, zero. One, uh, if there were any tweaks to the MMP system, uh, Richard, what do you think that might look like? Um, well, there is. Funny you should ask that question, was because as we speak, there is an there is an independent panel reviewing the electoral arrangements, and this will be the third or the fourth major review of different aspects of the Electoral Act that we've had since we adopted MP. Uh, I, I certainly don't speak on their behalf clearly, but from my point of view, the, the one thing that, that I think we really do need to look at very carefully is the is what we colloquially call the coattailing rule. So the, the part of the legislation that says if you don't hit 5% of the party vote threshold, but you win one constituency, either, either a Māori seat or a general seat, then you take that seat into Parliament, as well as whatever percentage of the vote that you have. That, I think, is a contentious one because it means that we have parties who have relatively low rates of support amongst the broader uh, population getting into the House yeah. and parties which have higher rates not doing so. And that is a thing that might be about to come back to bite the National Party. You know, between 2002, uh, from memory, there have been arrangements that various uh, ACT Party and National Party leaders have struck with each other, principally in the seat of Epsom. That's what's kept the ACT Party in the New Zealand Parliament. Uh, right. And now it looks as if ACT are going to uh, comfortably clear that threshold and perhaps be a not insignificant partner in government. We don't know yet, of course, but that is what the current polls are saying. And so there may well be some people okay. in the National Party who question the historic use of that particular anomaly. Yeah, interesting stuff, Richard. Kia ora. I appreciate it. That's uh, Professor Shaw from mm. uh, Massey University there. Uh, someone says, I voted today in Otaki at the local um, uh, local um, hall. It was great, quite easy. Uh, now I don't have to listen to all the electioneering. <laughs> Claire says, I voted this morning. Titarangi, a nice and quiet, good to get it done early. 19 past four. Now, there is no feeling quite like getting into your very first time a home that you've scrimped, you've saved for, a home that's yours to do what you want with. A first scheme that helps those into a first home has been put on hold due to the incredible demand. This is the Kango Order First Home Partner Scheme. There's been a 450% surge in demand. Now, if you've got a 5% deposit and earn no more than 150k, you are eligible. Kango Order then takes a stake of up to 25% or $200,000, whatever is lower. The buyer will then buy out Kango Order over time. The first home loan and first home grant schemes still available. With us is Jeremy Andrews, mortgage advisor. Welcome, Jeremy. Hey, how you going? Yeah, good to have you on. Does this show the sort of demand that's out there? You know, people want a first home, but hey, it has to be affordable to get into it the first place. Uh, definitely, yes. Yeah. So there's a, a 
well, we're probably finding more first home buyers applications at the moment than I've seen in a long time. Probably getting back to the when the kind of COVID was peaking and before interest rates really started ramping up and inflation really started ramping up. So definitely a lot of demand right now. And what what do you put that down to, Jeremy? Uh, a lot of the banks are opening up a lot of their lending criteria at the moment. Uh, the Reserve Bank has reduced some of the restrictions. So people with low deposit have a lot more options. Uh, the first home partner scheme, there were some changes announced only two months ago, really, uh, end of end of July, and they came into effect mid-August. So for the last six weeks, people have been able to apply with a lot less strict criteria on that. So basically, you can have more income and still qualify. And probably the biggest change is you can now, well, up until it's been put on hold, you could have qualified for an existing property rather than just a, a turnkey new build, which Okay, is yeah. how that first-owned partner scheme has been. I understand, which, anyway. is, which is quite significant, isn't it? Let's bring our panel and uh, Jeremy, they want a question or a comment for you. Uh, Jenny? I was just wondering, is there a, an upper limit on the price of a property they can be buying? Because I know with KiwiSaver, isn't it, that you that there is an upper limit on the value of the property is uh, with this scheme? It's it's kind of confusing. There's actually there's quite a few different Kaingora schemes at the moment. Um, some of them have limits on the purchase price in your region. Uh, that's the first home grant definitely has that. But the first home partner does not. It's a limit on your income. No. It's a brilliant scheme, and I think it's a fantastic way to help people into a home um, because it gets them in there and paying off their own mortgage instead of paying rent. So it's you know, and then while they're having to save for a deposit, so I think yeah. it's brilliant, Jeremy? absolutely brilliant. Shame that it's on hold. Yeah, that one is. But there's also there's a couple of other options out there that are still very attractive and possibly even even better suited to a lot of people. The first home loan uh, has a very similar name, but it also uh, Kaingawa doesn't have a stake. It's just the uh, some of that low deposit equity is underwritten by the government uh, okay. by Kaingawa. And that so one, and... a lot of solicitors might suggest that that's more appropriate if so you folks can should go afford to, to service more of that mortgage. Yeah. So folks should go and talk to a mortgage broker and get some good advice around this stuff. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of... Um, yeah, there's a lot to know about it, and yeah. probably a lot of mortgage brokers still don't know all of the finer details. Um, a lot of banks have different criteria. Some support it, some don't. Um, they've all got their own criteria around it as well. So yeah, a mortgage broker should have a good idea of which bank and which product is best suited if you've got low deposit. Yeah, so do your due diligence on that. Martin Bosley. Thank you, Oz. Uh, kia ora, Jeremy. Um, I, mean, I didn't even know schemes like this existed until uh, until this came across at my, at my desk today. That's what we're talking about. That's fantastic. Well. I mean, it's just, just fantastic, right? It's <laughs> How brilliant is this? Um, you know, and, and obviously, um, you know, the demand shows that there's actually, you know, the need for it. But Jeremy, like 8,000 applications, 1,700 approved approximately. Um, is that because a lot of these applications are getting turned down because they're not meeting the criteria, or is that just because this, they're, they're just that snowed under and they're behind? Do you think? Is it? There's, there's a combination. Sorry, God. Yeah, definitely a combination. Um, I had one client who, well, I did all of my assessments in advance, and from everything I could see, they should have qualified, and then they got turned down and still don't really know why. Um, hmm. 
they were right on the cusp of that limit of 150,000. Uh, so something must have tipped them over the edge. But definitely, um, if you can talk to a talk to a mortgage broker, you probably also need to get a bit of advice from your solicitor, which may come a little further down the track once you've got your approval for one of these schemes. Uh, at the moment, I'd say the first home loan is is still a very attractive option, and the first home grant. So the grant is a oh, between three to five thousand extra bonus uh, or extra. It's a grant from Kaingaroa or the government towards your first home that has a cap on how much you can buy for. Um, but that might be the difference between having enough deposit or not to be able to buy your home. Definitely check it out if yeah, you are yeah. in the market for a first time. Can I just come back to what I said first, though, Jeremy, because you'd see us all, all the time. Um, I, I, I'm lucky enough to, you know, uh, ha- have a home, but I can recall the very first day sitting on a polished floor in uh, our first little cottage and the feeling of, gosh, I own this. You probably see this quite a bit. There's nothing like seeing people who've bought for the very first time. Definitely. It's, uh, that's probably the biggest biggest joy in my job is yeah, helping people a lot of the time where they think they have no chance of buying their home for, for the foreseeable future and, and helping them find a way through so they can get into that home a heck of a lot sooner than they, they thought or yeah. maybe buy a, buy a nicer home than they thought. Good on you, Jeremy. Thanks for being with us. That's Jeremy Andrews, who's a mortgage advisor there uh, on that scheme that helps those into a first home, the uh, Kaingo Order First Home Partner Scheme. But you've also got the Home Grant Scheme as well that's still available. 26 past for the panel. Lovely to have you coming. Can I just sort of say, if you've just joined us, we are going to be doing, doing a classic occasional feature it's called the panel show and tell something hidden tucked away the back of your cupboard wrapped in tissue there you haven't seen it for 30 years but there it is we've had some wonderful responses coming through i have a piece of the grand canyon it caused quite terse debate with my then traveling partner and boyfriend i was against taking it we ended up going our separate ways a couple of years later and somehow i ended up with the rock it was a it's a permanent reminder of our different differences says michelle another one here wallace my show and tell is a little jar full of 10 gallstones people never guess what they are Keep them coming, 2101. So, a moral conundrum for you today, and it's a true story. It happened this weekend. A person house-sitting for two weeks looking after a dog and a goldfish, both treasured pets. The goldfish belongs to the child, but they're away overseas on a sunny holiday. Now, the goldfish has died possibly due to overfeeding by the house sitter. The question for the, for the nation is, should the goldfish be carefully replaced and will the owners notice? <laughs> or should the owners be alerted by text? What would you do? I put it to you now, Jenny. What would you do? Oh, God, this is such a tough one. And it might be because I don't feel as strongly about goldfish as I do about dogs. Um, I would probably 
let the homeowners know and it's up to them whether they tell the child. But I do not think you should try and sneakily replace it. I think that might be a very bad idea that could come back to literally bite you on the backside. But if all goldfish look the same... No, yes, but, you know, it might be a special goldfish. It might respond to its name. Who knows? You don't know. So they might know that you replaced the goldfish. What goldfish goldfish responds to a name? You're a fishmonger, Martin, you'd know. (laughs) I've never met a fish yet that's responded to his name. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I've tried calling them often enough. Come, 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 come. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so so Martin, you're a halcyter, you feed the goldfish, you overfeed it, and next minute, as happened, it's lying at the top of the water upside down. Would you text the <laughs> would you text the owners in their sunny holiday, or would you replace the fish? Well, listen, I have goldfish, and um, I would you know, and I'm telling you now, this, you'd never know. You could just replace this goldfish, and no one would be none the wiser. Replace, you'd find one pretty much identical. Replace the goldfish. Are you are you absolutely certain of that? Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I would just replace the goldfish. Yeah, like, oh, but is God. that the right thing to do? Is that the moral thing to do? The, Oh, is it a conundrum? I mean, I possibly would let the owners know and leave it up to them as to whether they tell their child and it, or say, do you want to go and buy a new fish or just leave it floating on yes. the top or what? You can put it in the freezer until they get back and then just Ooh. take it out and just drop it back in the water and pretend it was fine that morning when you left. Everything was fine. Um, you could do that, I suppose. But I, I would be um, just out of the pressure. Oh, my goodness, me. Just get another fish. And Quick, possibly. $4.50 $4. $4. gets you a new goldfish. Is that is that is that all? I, think, I don't know. I've got no well, idea. what's the point? Cheap, what, what's the problem there, Jenny? Four dollars fifty new goldfish. They probably won't know. Well, they might not know, and you're probably right. I I, I just think morally, you dog, need to. Then, you, the you know? goldfish might like a funeral. You know, <laughs> they might like to give their mm. goldfish a funeral. I would ask them if if their child is going to be devastated, and should you just replace it, and then that would solve everything, wouldn't it? I don't know. It's a bloody goldfish. Okay, well, yeah. tell you what, the listeners have responded. Um, we tried to trick our kid, caught us out immediately. <laughs> don't do it. Another one here, goldfish do not all look the same. Uh, so the prevailing wisdom from listeners is that um, you replace the goldfish at your peril. This is a true story. That apparently, too, just an update: the goldfish is still dead. It's still in the tank and it's still at the top of the water, upside down. So, what would you do? Replace the goldfish, or will you alert the owners overseas and upset the kid? It's a real moral conundrum. As a keeper of goldfish for many years now, goldfish are great at playing possum and pretending that they're dead. I've had, <laughs> I've had, I've had fish that I'm sure have been dead, and I was kind of poked it and they've sprung back to life again they're quite cunning the old goldfish this is a whole Why? new level never yeah. turn, you, never turn you back on goldfish all right well i will i will actually alert the person who i know and uh, mm. try and uh, get them to poke the fish um don't spoil the, the holiday wait till they get home and tell them the fish fretted for the absent child you're on the panel uh <laughs> international <laughs> I like that. I'll go with that one. <laughs> no You're on the panel, Aaron's at National. It's 